following talk is interspersed with some well-known songs that you've heard, heard down through your life, and I'm just attempting to show you how you're being conditioned uh, along with certain agendas with the songs you hear, just as you are with the movies you see. It's all predictive programming along a certain path. Well, just like that song there, we're all living in the dark. Uh, we don't know much about history. We don't know much about social politics. We don't know much about the, the movements which have been created down through history, uh, which appear to be different from each other on the outside. But when you look at their policies and their goals, they all tend to go towards the same destination. And when you find things all tending to come together, as the song goes, uh, towards the same destination, um, some people will clue in to the fact there's a common guiding hand here. Societal changes um, be likened to a herd of sheep who've been in the same field for a few years or even a generation. And the sheep themselves are totally unaware uh, of what their purpose is. They think they're there to, to be happy and to, to chew the cud. And, um, and they know the shepherd. They know the shepherd's face as he comes in. And he'll smile and he'll whistle to them and he'll, he'll even scratch some of their ears, you know. And, of course, when he wants them to eventually move to another field, he has to motivate them and get them ready to move because something which has been static for a long time uh, it takes a while to, to get into gear, you might say, without losing control. And that's how society is because society has been planned. You might say we've been farmed like Charles Fort said. We've been farmed basically down through the centuries for different purposes by a hidden elite and uh, a very high aristocracy which uses lower aristocracy to do the actual work, you might say. And when they have to need people for, for wars, uh, they breed them up. They, um, they'll allow them to have more food for themselves. Uh, they always allow, allow them to have plenty drink, alcohol, and so on, and even encourage sort of parties and festivals, and that way they knew they could keep the population up because during the festival times, uh, even religion would relax. People um, copulated and offspring were produced. And those guys would be the next crop for the next war, which was maybe planned 18 to 20 years down the road. And this is pretty standard all down through history. We can read about it from the days of Plato, where he talks about the necessity of culling the excess populations of the Grecian islands because they were islands and they could only stand so much of a population and uh, even the influx of slaves from all their wars would, would become a problem uh, sometimes and they would arm these slaves and, and put them in the army and have them fight uh, their neighbors and, and that way they called down the herd you might say and in those days it was talking about quite openly by the aristocracy um, 
slaves were cheap. The aristocracy saw those of the non-aristocracy as a separate, a separate animal, you might say. And nothing has changed up to the present. So for this particular talk, um, we're looking at how, at how society has been shaped from the 1800s um, in Europe and America, uh, world over really, um, by different groups. And one of these groups will be the Fabian Society, which was established in, in, in London, England, in the, in the late 1800s. The founders of the Fabian Society consisted primarily, at least as far as the public are concerned, with um, uh, Sidney Webb, who was a lifelong bureaucrat for the British government, who tried his best to, to work up and, and kiss the feet of the guys above him, hoping that he would be accepted as a, an aristocrat one day. Uh, but his wife really um, was called Beatrice, and Beatrice Webb uh, was from an, an aristocratic family uh, called the Potters. So she was Beatrice Potter. It might sound familiar to people. And Beatrice Potter, uh, her family, her father, was a sort of Halliburton of his day uh, because he would have contracts uh, with the British Army, with the Crown, and wherever they went abroad to slaughter people and take them off their land, they would devastate and burn down houses, and he would move in with his little huts that he'd sell back to the British government, and the taxpayers would pay for them, of course, and they'd put up these little shacks for the, for the people that they'd uh, simply dispossessed recently abroad. So the same system was in place then as it is today. Names change. Sometimes the names are actually the same family lineages, but uh, through marriage, etc., um, we have different surnames from the female and the male lineages. Uh, so the founders of, of, of the Fabian were, were the Webbs, and of course we had um, George Bernard Shaw, who was a playwright. And just like today, the playwrights in those days were funded by the big um, uh, corporations, uh, charitable corporations, as they call themselves, or, or philanthropic uh, organizations. And they would tell the authors, basically, what themes to write upon on social issues and to write them into novels so that the public who read them would have their opinions of things altered in such a direction that they would be all for a particular type of change. Uh, unsuspectingly, uh, really, that, that um, this has been organized by professional psychologists, you might say, um, at the top, because they understand the human mind, and through fiction we are programmed through emotion, where any act, anything at all, can be humanized in a way, in drama, as to make it palatable to the people. So, so, so the Webbs and Bernard Shaw and a third member, uh, H.G. Wells, another lowly-born person. He was born into um, a family that had lost its wealth, a middle-class family. His mother became a, a housemaid to an aristocratic family, and H.G. Wells was brought up in this particular house where his mother was the, uh, the maid, basically. And they had a terror. Domestic staff had a tremendous terror of poverty 
as they watched factory workers passing the windows. And they used to be terrified of having to join them one day. So they became more snobbish than, than the people who, who hired them, the actual owners of the homes. However, um, this thirst for power or to get up into a higher class um, enabled guys like Wells to be picked for that very craving, uh, knowing that he'd have no conscience uh, in getting up there. And he was also employed as a fictional writer to brainwash people basically through fiction into certain directions and ways of thinking. A planned society was his, his general theme through, through fictional works, like Shape of Things to Come. Most of his works, actually, though, were non-fiction, like his outline of history in two volumes. Um, his son uh, finished the second volume uh, because Wells died about 48, 1948. Um, so those three main founders, uh, at least for the public's uh, image, um, uh, were the frontmen for the Fabian Society. Uh, the Fabian Society was funded by the British aristocracy, not the, the British working class. And the British working class were taught that this would, uh, this was actually formed for them. It was on the side of labor. And out of that came the Labour Party of Britain, in fact. And at the top of the Labour Party of Britain, the Fabian Society still rules. And on the stained glass window in the, the home of Mrs. Uh, uh, Webb in London, uh, you'll see uh, this, this, the, the, portrait, the, the actual stained glass portrait of the founders and two of them are hammering the world into shape on an anvil. So, so in other words, the elite, the intellectual, scientific elite uh, are beating the world into uh, the proper shape, you might say, the way it should be, the reshaping of society uh, symbolized as the world. Now, uh, Bertrand Russell was another member of this group. Bertrand Russell was a... Uh, an, an aristocrat. His father was Lord Amberley, um, who was heavily involved in, in politics. He had a seat in, in, the, in the House of Lords, uh, which is the, the British uh, Senate, basically, although you inherit the title. Um, and Burton Russell was born in the early 1870s. The same man was running the anti-war movement in 1960, it, still out in front of the crowds, and he ran the Committee of 100, they called it, which was the radical group of the anti-war uh, protest movement. Uh, this particular group would, would smash down and, and cut through the fences at air bases and storm onto the runway and destroy things. So, so here again, you have an aristocrat um, funded through the Fabian Society, pretending to be on the working man's side, um, leading vast amounts of people who'd fallen for his spiel. And these guys always have a very good spiel, you see. And, and yet this lord, um, this particular lord, had nothing in common with the working class, nothing whatsoever. In fact, he never mixed with them apart from the, the mobs that he would speak in front he wouldn't mix with them because he had nothing in common with them. 
He was a eugenicist. He believed in superior breeding and the breeding of intellect into people. He believed in abortion, birth control, and eugenics, meaning mandatory abortion for certain people below IQ levels of, of whatever. And, and Lord Bertrand Russell was a big, big player uh, as far as the public are concerned because he wrote so many books which can, can use certain truths and certain facts to bring you to a, a preconceived conclusion, knowing you must arrive by the way the information is presented. Most of the, the facts you arrive at, actually, or the conclusions you come to, um, are arrived at because they omit other facts. And, and that's how most of these conclusions are reached. Bertrand Russell, he was given a personal teacher, a tutor, when he was very young. And this tutor was a Darwinian, as Mr. Russell in his own autobiography says. And he was a crazy guy, of course. He, he had chickens running all over the house. And he wanted to study their various habits and, and etc. And maybe he hoped they'd evolve into a, a higher type of dinosaur. But, but who can tell? So this was the era that Bertrand Russell was born into, where Darwinianism had, had been pushed out by the Royal Society of, of England, London, a high Freemasonic scientific society, who was really under the Darwinian guise of evolution, uh, pushing the ancient religion, inner religion of Freemasonry, which is really basic Hinduism, uh, because Freemasonry goes with Hinduism exactly along the lines that we just sort of evolved from uh, amoebas and, into little animals and, and, and slammed up the, the mud banks and, and then just through various chances, etc., in billions of years, we, we sort of arrived at where we are. And, and, of course, we're not stopped at the moment. We've got a great leap forward to go through for the new man, for the new age, which is Aquarius, and we're right here now, you see. This is where we're coming up to. So this, this is all ties in together. So it's, it's, here's a little bit from uh, Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell's own autobiography, uh, one of the first volumes published, actually. The, the later ones, I don't know if they're exactly the same. So he said that my father, Lord Amberley, had recently died, after a long period of gradually increasing debility, my mother and my sister had died of diphtheria about a year and a half sooner. My mother, as I came to know her later from her diary and her letters, was vigorous, lively, witty, serious, original, and fearless. Judging by her pictures, she must have also have been very beautiful. It didn't run off and rub off on old Bertie here. Uh, my father was philosophical, studious, unworldly, morose, and priggish. Both were ardent theorists of reform and prepared to put into practice whatever theory they believed in. My father was a disciple and friend of John Stuart Mill, from whom both learned to believe in birth control and votes for women. 
because John Stuart Mill, you see, was a top economist, and being in on the know and the plan and a high mason, etc., they had to double the workforce by getting women into it, destroy the family unit, and bring in mandatory abortion, uh, which has all been accomplished since then. Um, he says, My father lost his seat in Parliament through advocacy of birth control. My mother sometimes got into hot water for her radical opinions. At a garden party given by the parents of Queen Mary, the Duchess of Cambridge, remarked in a loud voice, Yes, I know who you are. You are the daughter-in-law. But I, now I hear you only like dirty radicals and dirty Americans. All London is full of it. All the clubs are talking of it. I must look at your petticoats to see if they are dirty. So that's, that's the type of radicals we're looking at. We're looking at uh, an aristocracy within the aristocracy with a mission. And it does also tell you that, that Queen Mary, the Duchess of Cambridge, um, was not in on the ultimate plan, which makes sense in Freemasonry because the one at the top is irrelevant. Uh, the front man is, is not important. It's number two that is important. It's the, it's, it's the guy behind the prime minister or the president that's important. So those behind know the plan, while often the one at the top does not. So it's interesting to read um, that Bertrand Russell was a friend of um, John Stuart Mill, who believed in a world run by experts like himself on an economic system uh, run by experts, uh, a fixed family planning world over, where you would not be born unless they had a function for you, and where, where the elite would decide what you would work at, uh, and you'd be trained from school simply for that task. This is, in fact, the Soviet system, because you see the same aristocracy created and were behind communism. They created the both systems, and that's why both systems run along the same path. Today we have school to work, which is the Soviet system, so it's here, people. Now, Albert Pike, who was the, the grand pontiff of uh, Freemasonry in the late 1800s, uh, also called his, um, his organization, and he boasted about it. He said, the world revolutionaries. He says, we have, meaning the Freemasons, of course, had been behind every world revolution. And um, he was very proud of it, and modern Masonic books back that up. Um, Albert Pike trained a man who started a revolution in Italy, whose name was Mazzini, Giuseppe Mazzini. Now, Mazzini is just a, a, a sort of Italian version of Mason, so that probably wasn't his real name. But uh, he stirred up revolution in, in Italy, because the idea was to unite the countries under one central government, and then unite the central governments into one world government. But that was to come later under the League of Nations, and then the United Nations. Um, this is what Bertrand Russell says about Mazzini, and it shows you the ties. Now, Mazzini pushed what appeared to be the communist cause. Mazzini gave my mother his watch case, which is now in my possession. My mother used to address meetings in favor of votes for women, and I found one passage in her diary where she speaks of the Potter Sisterhood, which included Mrs. Sidney Webb and Lady Courtenay as social butterflies. So what you're seeing here are 
really the same it's the same system of course as the Illuminati where they had one sect for the males and the females that would go out into society the social uh, create social organizations um, led again by by people in, in in the upper classes and the people followed them so so here's Bertrand Russell who's a British lord who who was given the watch case uh, of of Mazzini. Now, Mazzini's organization was called the World Revolutionary Party, which was a branch of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry set up by Albert Pike. Uh, the guy who took over from Mazzini was Lenin, and, and then turned it to the Bolshevik Party. So here's the tie-in with the British aristocracy, the royalty, with communism. And they needed the masses to believe in them that it was for the working man. And through many front organizations and, and front speakers, they conned the masses into this. They, they kept Britain from rioting by giving them a labor party which they themselves had set up. And through, through government, you see, and the setting up of what they call democracy, they, they expanded bureaucracies, which is the real government. The bureaucracy is government. The bureaucracy is never elected. Uh, people work in different bureaucracies their whole life on a single mission, which they know, regardless of what political party is out in front. So the political party really is the front organization to keep the public amused and debating and hot-headed about, well, the bureaucracies uh, know what their missions are and they work fervently towards it. This is the real was really all about. So, so the whole thing was to get the public from where they were, which was a, a, an industrial era, um, forced industrialism, which which had uh, through the through the, the laws like the Corn Laws that were passed in England and put through by uh, Lord Rothschild, which dumped cheap grain in Britain and put the farmers out of work. Then the farmers were all pushed into the cities. The cities now had the manpower to create the, revol the industrial revolution. And on we go with, with um, heavy, heavy industry. Uh, they also had wars going uh, full time, of course, because you've got to use industry for war machines. And it, it killed off the population, too, because the average person didn't live over much over 25 if they made it that far working in factories for 16 to 17 hours per day uh, for a pittance which didn't even buy you rent money you often slept in the factory and um, and, and you could barely eat because the, uh, the, they were kept at starvation levels that was Great Britain in its heyday you see that was the British Empire so the British Empire certainly looked after the ones who owned the empire but it used as, as chattel those beneath it and they knew they had to move on to a post-industrial uh, era. And so these guys like Bertrand Russell and Wells, etc., uh, prepared the minds of people uh, through books, uh, Russell with his non-fiction, Wells with his fiction primarily. And, um, of course, we had uh, Bernard Shaw with his idea of, of fiction, uh, promoting certain changing values through their, through their books, hoping that the public would adopt them as they upgraded the system from the from what had served its purpose 
to get the public to serve a new purpose, you see. It was never for the public's benefit. It was to get the sheep from one field into the next field without causing too much panic. And the, the like Albert Pike said, uh, the Grand Master of Freemasonry, the High Pope of Masonry, he said we never begin a premature revolution. We always, always prepare the groundwork before we even begin the launch of the revolution itself. Say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. Now, the webs were interesting people. Because Sidney Webb was such a bureaucrat, he used to put uh, the members of the Fabian Society to a hypnotic trance and asleep, a deep coma almost, with his bureaucraties. He had a special language of his own, which he was cultivating for all bureaucrats. We're all familiar with some of it today because it's mentioned over television news stations uh, quite frequently. Um, they actually do talk about, like that amongst themselves, by the way. But uh, the webs led off uh, what appeared to be this, this great left-wing labor or- organization to get the, the herd, as they called the people, uh, moving into the next stage, a scientific era, you see, a technological age. And uh, that was their job, was to, to con them and, and to, to get them to come along willingly, thinking it was all on their behalf. So... Uh, Here's a statement from Bertrand Russell's autobiography about the webs themselves, just to let you know where these people really had their mind. He said, he said on page 115 of the autobiography of Bertrand Russell, it says, both of them, the webs, were fundamentally undemocratic and regarded it as a function of a statesman to bamboozle or terrorize the populace. I realized the origins of Mrs. Webb's conceptions of government when she repeated to me her father's description of shareholders' meetings. It is the recognized function of directors to keep shareholders in their place. And she had a similar view about the relation of the government to the electorate. So that's the kind of of people who led, and still do, by the way, the Labour Party. It's a, it's a con job over the, the working people because they've never had one of their own in the top, never, and it never will happen. Their leaders are always supplied to them. Uh, she goes on to talk about uh, her father, uh, Beatrice Webb. Her father's stories of his career had not given her any undue respect for the great. After he had built huts for the winter quarters of the French armies in the Crimea, he went to Paris to get paid. And from then, of course, he talks about him putting up uh, the huts and so on, as I said before, in the destroyed areas across the planet. He was the Halliburton of, of his day. He had all the contracts from governments. And that's where the Potter family obtained the, the masses of their wealth. Uh, so these characters were anything but working class. Um, Bertrand Russell also mentions... Uh, uh, that, that they hated Ramsay MacDonald, 
was the front man for the Labour Party, yet they had nothing in common with him since they came from the, an upper class, and they were rather hostile to him since he was uncouth and unlearned, etc. In other words, the, the Webs were incredibly snobbish, which, uh, which is uh, very common in Britain. Um, even the accent gives away your, your education and your, 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 your state. You actually, not just your state of birth or level of birth, it, it's a caste system. It, it's, it has so much in common with India because Britain, England, has a caste system pretty well identical to that of India. And it may be one day we'll find out that, that the high Brahmins of India um, are the same bloodlines of those that run Britain, and I wouldn't be in the least surprised if that's the case. So, so Bertrand Russell, uh, the Webbs, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, and Wells tried to take over the Fabian Society at one point, and, and uh, the Webbs put him back in his place. Uh, uh, Wells was a, a manic depressive himself, um, and he, he played with drugs, etc. He had, he had the usual upper class problems with, with uh, sexual relations. He had to have his wife, uh, he had different wives, and they had to sign contracts that they would do certain things for him in a sexual manner and, and promise to keep their mouths shut if they ever got divorced. So uh, no doubt he had various fetishes, and, and perhaps he, when, when his wife was beating him, with the whip, maybe he, he, he thought of the working classes getting beaten. Who knows? Something turned him this strange man on. So we have this, these types of characters running the left and the right wing. Now, uh, people who want to read uh, uh, the autobiography of Bertrand Russell should think for themselves as they read it. Um, remember, there's much more information about, uh, well, about um, Bertrand Russell than his own autobiography. You'll find another book. It's called. It's called. Uh, this particular one is called. In the minds of men, excellent book. Uh, the subtitle is Darwin and the New World Order. And that was that was written by Ian Taylor, who's a scientist in Canada. And he goes through much more of of these particular characters, who changed. Society changed history, uh, created the fads that became taught as, as, as reality, like Darwinianism. Um, he says, in fact, in his own book, this one here, uh, In the Minds of Men, uh, commenting on Bertrand Russell, he said, uh, he said Margaret Mead, uh, Margaret Mead, of course, was put out there to, to push for abortion and, and, and so, so on. And actually, she was she was she was more than just an abortionist. She wanted to also start uh, sterilization processes, much like Margaret Sanger had done uh, before her, uh, for for the mentally unfit, as they called them. And of course, once they have an IQ level which they claim is appropriate, and everybody says that that's fine, I'm I'm above that. Well, of course, like every other law they have in the book, they then change it and expand it, and uh, it would have been a horror show if that if that had come to pass. But uh, Mead became uh, the darling instead of humanists such as Bertrand Russell um, in 1929. And Havelock Ellis, who cited her work often to promote their own ideas of sexual liberation, because this uh, free sex, is what they called it, free love, was started in the 1800s. 
by these, these same aristocratic people that they wanted the people to emulate. They wanted to destroy the family unit. In fact, the family unit was the last vestige of, of um, power which would stand up collectively against uh, uh, too much intrusion by an elite. And so it had to, the family had to go. Once that was destroyed, then the state became supreme ruler directly to the individual, which we see today. Uh, Many women now, it's probably over half, have uh, are single parent families, and there's generally social workers from the state uh, involved in their lives all the time, concerning the rearing of their children or removing of their children, and this again is uh, was planned and discussed freely by guys like Bertrand Russell back in the 1800s, um, uh, Margaret Mead, and and Havelock Ellis, and so on. Um, so this, 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 this was a big, rich club, you see, of, of rich elitists. Um, in Darwin and the Minds of Men, it says uh, Mead and Benjamin Spock. Um, between, between them, the pattern of North American child-rearing was radically changed, and the fruits of their labors are now becoming evident in today's divorce statistics. Mead's own modest contribution to these statistics consisted of having three husbands, uh, which would seem to refute the promise of a happy and graceful life she claimed science showed to be possible with a liberated sexual lifestyle. Ironically, for both science and alleged happy life, Mead, one of America's leading scientists and a, purport, a purported Christian, uh, died in 1978 in the arms of a psychic faith healer. So another little clue that pops in down through the ages with reading all these guys they're all Masons or Eastern stars for the females. They all believe in the same um, channeling experiences from entities, uh, and, and they, they front for a Christian organization. That's their cover. Uh, Bertrand Russell espoused the total Masonic doctrine of evolution and great purpose behind it, meaning a great power, the grand architect of the universe, and, and Mead was into the uh, fortune telling and, and palm reading and um, and channeling of course so these are the these are these are the, the heroes who helped change society which they claimed for the was for the better so let's go back to another book of Bertrand Russell and this one is called uh, the impact of science on society um, this was a, a, a treatise, really, on population control on one level, and it was also a treatise on methods of, of creating population control. Uh, what I'm going to read here, and this book was initially written or published, I believe, in, let me see, 1952. Uh, this, this now is... is, is a good part of what became known as the, the Earth Charter that Maurice Strong put forward. And, of course, it was one of the, the Rockefellers who actually wrote it for Maurice Strong. But in reality, Bertrand 
Let us now bring together the conclusions which result from our inquiry into the various kinds of conditions that a scientific society must fulfill if it is to be stable. Now, he's talking about a society controlled by scientists, a world run by experts. He says, first, as regards uh, physical conditions, soil and raw materials must not be used up so fast that scientific progress cannot continually make good the loss by means of new inventions and discoveries. Scientific progress is therefore a condition, not merely of social progress, but even of maintaining the degree of prosperity already achieved. Given a stationary technique, the raw materials that it requires will be used up in no very long time. If raw materials are not to be used up too fast, there must not be free competition for their acquisition and use, but an international authority to ration them in such quantities as may from time to time seem compatible with continued industrial prosperity. And similar conditions apply to soil, soil conservation. Now here, that which got written into the Earth Charter and then into the Agenda 21 from the UN Charter, um, and, and now we find out that Bertrand Russell's writing it in the 1950s, and then if we go back to, to his friend that he mentions earlier, um, his, his particular uh, friendship with, um, let me see here, uh, John Stuart Mills, the economist in the 1800s. This is the same thing. It's just reiterated over and over again. They had the plan made up in the 1800s to do exactly that's what they're talking about here. Um, he goes on in uh, Impact of Science on Society, Bertrand Russell. Second, as regards population, if there is not to be a permanent and increasing shortage of food, agriculture must be conducted by methods which are not wasteful of soil. An, in an increase in population must not outrun the increase in food production rendered possible by technical improvements. At present, neither condition is fulfilled. The population of the world is increasing and its capacity for food production is diminishing. Such a state of affairs obviously cannot continue very long without producing a cataclysm. Now, of course, this is all nonsense. And then we can go back even further to the 1700s, where the precursor of John Stuart Mill was uh, Malthus, who also was an economist for the British East India Company, who did, dealt with the very same nonsense and, and was always shouting, uh, 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 fear, 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 above no food and the population is just uh, growing out of proportions. And he printed his book on population control, uh, this is Malthus, uh, two years before the British uh, did its first census. So he even quoted fake figures for his book, because it hadn't been done yet, the census, that is. Um, back to the impact of science on society by Bertrand Russell. To deal with this problem, it will be necessary to find ways of preventing an increase in world population. If this is to be done otherwise than by wars, pestilences, and famines, it will demand a powerful international authority. My God, we hear the same thing over and over, eh? This authority should deal out the world's food to the various nations in proportion to their population at the time of the establishment of the authority. If any nation subsequently increases its population, it should not on that account receive any more food. The motive for not increasing population would therefore be very compelling. 
what method of preventing an increase might be preferred should be left to each state to decide. Now, each state is each country. Um, it's interesting that this, written in the 1950s, became a part of Agenda 21, pretty well word for word. It tells you this is an old plan run by the same people, the same elite group down through the ages. Uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, and I'll try and find it here, and this is all off the cuff pretty well, by the way. Nothing's rehearsed here. Um, uh, okay, he, he goes on in uh, page 116 of the impact of science on society. He said, um, Are mere members too, so important that, for their sake, we should patiently permit such a state of affairs to come about? Surely not. What then can we do? Apart from certain deep-seated prejudices, the answer would be obvious. The nations which at present increase rapidly should be encouraged to adopt the methods by which the West, in the West, the increase of population has been checked. The increase of population has been checked. Now remember that statement there. Now how did they check the population increase in the West? Uh, because it was at that time in the 1800s, right through, they started inoculations. And if you follow the, the statistics of the British, British Medical Association, who did careful follow-ups on all those who got inoculated, everybody who was inoculated against these particular diseases died of them. That's how they checked the population increase. I'll go on here. Educational propaganda with government help could achieve this result in a generation. There are, however, two powerful forces opposed to such policy, one is religion, the other is nationalism. I think it is the duty of all who are capable of facing facts to realize and to proclaim that opposition to the spread of birth control, if successful, must inflict upon mankind the most appalling depth of misery and degradation, and that within another 50 years or so. So he was predicting here that um, by the year 2000, we'd be walking all over each other and crawling over each other to get to work. That's if there was any work left. He says, I do not pretend that work birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others which must, one must suppose opponents of birth control would prefer. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been dis disappointing in this respect. Now, I'll repeat that for the hard of thinking. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto disappointing in this respect. So he's admitting that they used war to kill off the people. And if you look at the history of Britain since the Rothschilds took over, there's been one war after another. So they're, they're very disappointed and killed enough off, you see. Says, if a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. Well, there's a nice statement to make, isn't it? If a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. There would be nothing in this to offend the consciousness, the consciousness of the devout or to restrain the ambitions of nationalists. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness. I'll repeat that part. Really high-minded people, he's talking about himself and his own class, you see, are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. However, I am wandering from the, the question of stability to which I must return. There are three ways of securing a society that shall
wars, and the third that of, of general misery except for a powerful minority. Well, he's in the powerful minority group, so he can suggest this. All these methods have been practiced. The first, for example, by the Australian Aborigines. The second by the Aztecs, the Spartans and the rulers of Plato's Republic. The third in the world, as some Western internationalists hope to make it, and in the Soviet Russia. It is not to be supposed that Indians and Chinese like starving, but they have to endure it because the armaments of the West are too strong for them. They hadn't built up China, of course, to be the manufacturer of the world by then. That wasn't his department. Of these three, only birth control controls uh, birth controls avoid extreme cruelty and unhappiness for the majority of human beings. Meanwhile, so long as there's not a single world government, he's always repeating that thing again, there will be competition for power amongst the different nations. And as increase of population brings the spread of famine, national power will become more and more obviously the only way to avoid starvation. There will, there will therefore be blocks in which the hungry nations band together are against those that are well fed. This is the explanation of the victory of communism in China. Now, it's interesting that Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, um, who talks about uh, the victory of communism in China, he went over to China in the 1920s. Um, it wasn't the, the, the Soviets who went over to train the Chinese in, in communism. Bertrand Russell was sent from England to do it. And he taught in universities basic theories in communism to the, to the very young. Uh, those young students became the first leaders of the communist parties um, in, throughout China. So once again, we have the, the central hub, London, and the aristocracy um, running both sides of the fence here, capitalism and communism, because between the two of them, they would terrorize the world and going the third way, which is the compromise between the two which is a small dominant elite who would then rule over the minds of the people who would be run in a communistic fashion by layers and layers and layers of, of bureaucracies. Uh, this is the fasci coming together, you see, with, with the sickle and the hammer of communism. This is the third way. Uh, this, is, this is it. The road is long find all these people, these uh, elitists, you see, uh, are all Masons uh, and the daughters of Masons, uh, Eastern stars, who are giving you this Hindu-Masonic religion of theirs, of evolution, to, to the next great leap forward where they believe truly, true believers, you see, in their religion. Uh, they're not hypocrites. They really believe their religion and that they have the right 
being offended over others, offended masters, to to dictate the direction that everyone else should go in society. Um, of course, they keep us, uh, uh, as the profane, they call them, those in the darkness, um, because, uh, well, we just can't handle truth, you see, and, and we're too stupid to handle truth, and we couldn't make the proper decisions for ourselves, so so they, they treat us kindly like good shepherds and, and make all the decisions for us. Uh, Michael Gorbachev, who was the, the head of the KGB in the Soviet Union, you know those nice guys in the black outfits that, that used to kidnap people at night from their houses and torture them and kill them, and then became president of the Soviet Union, and then was picked by Maggie Thatcher to come over to London, uh, where the press uh, agreed not to ask him any nasty questions about his politics, he only talked about his new blue suits, etc. Very trendy man, and uh, his, his wife's hairdos. Uh, his wife at the time explained that you could get a free facelift if you walked into a clinic in, in any Russian street. You see, it was just a, a wonderland over there, and you had abortion on demand. They couldn't give you the pill that cost money, but you get an abortion in five minutes. Uh, that's called efficiency under the communist uh, system for the ordinary people. So Michael Gorbachev, who was eventually knighted by the Queen and became a Knight of Lazarus, which is, wears the Templar cross, only it's a green cross, that's his function, is to side with Maurice Strong and, uh, and push the Earth Charter, etc. He wrote a book, or at least they had it written for him. It's called Michael Gorbachev, The Search for a New Beginning, subtitled Developing a New Civilization. And he said... Um, the greening of politics, and that's where the, the Green Party, you see, it was started in the, in the Soviet bloc, the Green Party. And uh, in fact, it was started up by a right-hand man of, of Stalin. Uh, his daughter or granddaughter took it over and brought it to Europe. The greening of politics is an affirmation of the priority of values common to humanity, enriching education and, and upbringing with ecological cont- content from childhood onward and developing a new and modern attitude towards nature. At the same time, the greening of politics is a return to humankind of the awareness of humanity as a part of nature. Now, that rings a bell if you read the Biodiversity Treaty, where you have no more rights than an ant. In fact, they have more rights than you do. Uh, the moral improvement of society and the maturation of civilization is inconceivable without this. Uh, Michael goes on uh, elsewhere to talk about um, the choices facing humankind. Today, humankind is facing a choice. It's time for every individual nation and state to rethink its place and role in the world affairs. We need an intellectual breakthrough into a new dimension. This is the great leap forward of masonry once again. And that means the state of the human spirit assumes paramount importance. The roles of culture, religion, science, and education must grow enormously responsibility of the Centers for Humanity's intellectual, scientific, and religious development is immense and must be given preeminence, and it sure has, because we didn't have any say in the thing at all. The future of human society will not be defined in terms of capitalism versus socialism. It was that dichotomy that caused the division between the world community in the two blocks and brought about so many catastrophic consequences. We need to find a paradigm that will integrate all the achievements of uh, the, let me see, turn over the page, let's take them together here, of the human mind and human action. 
irrespective of which ideology or political movement can be credited with them. This is the coming together of the, the heads and the tails of the coin, because they're both run by the same money men, you see. Uh, this paradigm can only be based on the common values that humankind has developed over many centuries. The search for a new paradigm should be a search for synthesis. So you had the thesis, you see capitalism, the antithesis of communism, and here's the synthesis for what is common to and unite people, countries, and nations, rather than what divides them. The search for such a synthesis can succeed if the following conditions are met. First of all, we must return to the well-known human values that are embodied in the ideals of the world religions, and also in the socialist ideas, ideas that inherited much from those values. He means the Fabian society. Further, we need to search for a new paradigm of development that is based on those values and that is capable of leading us towards a generally humanistic, now remember that word, humanistic, or more precisely, humanistic ecological culture of living. So <clears throat> humanism, of course, believes that man is God because there's nothing else. So that the, the most advanced intellectually have the right to rule over those less advanced. And ecology, of course, is to do with, with the planet and, and um, economy as well, all lumped into one. A scientific socialism is what he's talking about. He's reiterating uh, the very values that um, Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells, and and all the rest of the Fabian Society were spouting out back in the 1800s, and still do, actually. Their descendants still run uh, the Fabian Society today. And he said, too, here that, um, this is Gorbachev, the philosophy of the 21st century must be grounded in a philosophy of diversity. We've heard that before. If life is such as the, uh, as such as the highest value, then even more precious is the singular identity of every nation and every race with a unique creation of nature and human history. At the same time, we must begin to define certain moral maxims or ethical commandments that constitute values common to all humankind. Well, you'll notice that the UN has its own version of the commandments in place, and anyone can go on the website and see them. Um, he goes on about this, the fact that we must uh, create a new religion which is based on, on earth worship. You see, earth worship. This, of course, will eventually, it's in my words, but uh, it's from the book. It's, it's the reading between the lines. Uh, earth worship takes you into uh, a controlled society, just like family planning, only it's global planning, and, and worshipping the earth. You'll have a dumbed-down population who probably can't read or write down in the future. And they'll be given a religion where they'll either have themselves um, voluntarily sterilized to save Mother Earth, of course, um, and to make sure there's no, no mouths that, that uh, are surplus that need feeding, and, of course, to, to so that the elites won't have to bother with the, the ramifications of, of discontented, uh, starving people. So, um, so yes, this is the same, the same agenda. Michael Gorbachev, with his... Uh, his uh, presidio down in the States there where he runs this green movement from. It's all part of the Maurice Strong's movement and, and Maurice, of course, was picked by the Rockefellers who are part of the same uh, version of the Fabian Society of London, uh, the intermix with the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, the American branch is the Council on Foreign Relations, and we are being managed just like animals and they're breeding us up, breeding us down, uh, dumbing us down for sure at the moment and they intend to cull us down to a manageable size and then uh, 
clone different pipes for specific functions in the near future. That way they won't need the media supports to entertain us, and then we won't be wasteful of all the toys which we reward ourselves, all these little cheap things from China which don't last very long. Um, this is the, the, the basic um, system which is running our world, and you and I and the public have absolutely no say in this agenda whatsoever.
childhood is called socialism, where big brother or big daddy takes care of all your problems for you. Uh, that's why they sing, we are the world, you see. We are the children. Uh, and of course, um, I don't like being referred to as a child. I'm a thinking, adult, sentient being, and um, I resent being called a child. I'm not part of a global village either uh, that owns lock, stock, and barrel um, with the UN fronting for it and all the big rich boys owning it. Um, I'm not a serf or a slave. And uh, that's how we must take this forward, is from that point of view. Individualism is the way to overcome all of this. Uh, individual thinkers, individual thought, and that takes tolerance from other people too. Uh, the masses would like us all to be the same. There's no doubt about it. Many people love socialism and will love having decisions made for them. But for those who do not, um, we must accept the fact that, that uh, amongst individuals there will be different opinions. That's why we're individuals. And it's more exciting to have a world full of individual opinions and, and different ways of looking at things than, than a single mass outlook, a politically correct outlook on things. That's the kind of world we must work towards. Thank you. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must 